Hello, and welcome to Muskegon History and Beyond with the Lakeshore Museum Center. My name is Pat Horn, and with me today is Aaron Mace, the Assistant Program Manager at the Historic Sites. Aaron, thanks for joining me. Yeah, glad to be here. Today, Aaron and I are going to be talking about a theory that was, um, I guess, put forward this winter, right, Aaron? Uh, it's been around for a while, but I think that's when it kind of gained a lot of uh, steam. So what we're talking about is the theory that the Confederate Gold Lost Treasury was actually brought to Muskegon here and was actually tied in with Charles Hackley and a lot of his wealth. So Aaron is the program manager at the historic sites, and he kind of deals with everything Hackley, would you say, Aaron? Yeah, Hackley and Hume, definitely. So he's got kind of an inside scoop on Hackley, so we're going to see he's done some research on this theory and kind of what happens with it and see if it has any merit. Aaron, first of all, can you give me just kind of a rough outline of the theory that was put forth? Sure. So whenever something new regarding Hackley and Hume comes out, obviously we're very interested since that's sort of our bread and butter over here. And I began digging into this uh, theory that was put forward, and the kind of basics of it are that Jefferson Davis, who was captured on uh, May 10th, 1865, had with him about $2 million worth of uh, Confederate gold when he was captured between himself and the um, party of people who were with him. Jefferson Davis was captured by the 4th Michigan Cavalry, which was led by a gentleman named Robert Minty, and Minty was also joined by another person named uh, Benjamin Pritchard. And they uh, captured Jefferson Davis on May 10th, and it was put forward at that time that that was when they stole the large amount of gold that Jefferson Davis had with him that was being carried in um, multiple wagons as part of their kind of wagon train. And after the 4th Michigan uh, captured Jefferson Davis and this gold, they left off the wagons that were carrying the gold from the inventory that they did of the people and the items that were captured as part of this party. And that's why the number of horses and mules that were reported with uh, Davis and his party don't actually match the number of uh, wagons or ambulances that were with Jefferson Davis at the time. So that is one of the reported discrepancies. So after the 4th Michigan uh, captured the gold, they buried it, and then between 1870 and 1876, uh, it's believed that Robert Minty, who was that leader of the 4th Michigan Cavalry, uh, used his position at some different railroad companies to move the gold north from Georgia to Muskegon between about 1870 and 1876. And along the way, word got out that Confederate gold was traveling on one of these trains, and to kind of cause a diversion, uh, Robert Minty staged, or didn't stage, but actually caused the Ashtabula Railroad Bridge disaster, which happened in Ashtabula, Ohio, so that when the train uh, crashed off this railroad bridge, people would be searching that train for the gold while it had actually been switched onto another train as kind of a decoy. So he'd kind of put forward a, a rumor, I guess, that there might be gold on this train? Yeah, I don't know if he started it or if someone else had got out, but basically he had switched the gold to another train so that it could safely travel north. And so the train is eventually stopping here in Muskegon or just in Michigan somewhere? In Muskegon is where they believe it came to. So it does have somewhat of a Muskegon connection. Uh, Robert Minty, who was that uh, leader of the 4th Michigan, he was the brother-in-law of George Alexander Abbott, who was kind of a well-known businessman here in Muskegon. And uh, George Abbott was the vice president of Muskegon National Bank, and Charles Hackley was also involved at Muskegon National Bank. 
So the theory says that Minty used his connection to Abbott and then Abbott's connection to Hackley to sort of convince both of them to use their connection at the Muskegon National Bank to basically launder the gold through that bank and possibly others as well in exchange for part of the treasure. So if they use the banking connection to launder the money, they would get kind of a cut of the proceeds there. How much is the treasure valued at at that time, or what's the, the theory of how much it is? They believe it was about $2 million then, which I'm not 100% sure how much that would be today, but obviously a pretty... Hefty sum. Yeah, a pretty yeah. amazing um, sum of money for sure. They believe that it started off being kept at Muskegon National Bank uh, in the burglar-proof vaults that were there, and that it also explains why uh, Hackley National Bank, which kind of came from Muskegon National Bank and Muskegon National Bank itself, they had a large starting capitals of about $100,000, which they believe was kind of unusual for that time period. And since Pritchard, who was a member of the 4th Michigan, who was also there when they captured Jefferson Davis, he moved to Allegan after the war, and he opened the first National Bank of Allegan, where part of this gold was also laundered. So they believe that the 4th Michigan had kind of some different connections. in Some different banks. Yeah, exactly. Now, were there a lot of banks kind of cropping up this time? Is that something that was common? Yeah, especially these kind of national banks. There were quite a few around Michigan. Even during the 1870s and 1880s, there were quite a few banks that started right here in Muskegon, so the opening of the banks themselves was pretty normal. So then what did Hackley, according to the theory, do with the gold that he received? Well, obviously part of that went right into his pocket and kind of added to his personal wealth, but the theory also speculates that Charles Hackley, because he felt uh, guilty for participating in this kind of plot to steal this gold, gave a lot of his gifts back to Muskegon as a way to kind of, I guess, try and absolve himself of this bad deed. So he believed that by giving things back to the community that that was sort of helping in a sense that if he stole from people who were bad and gave to the community that he thought was good, that that would sort of make himself feel better. And I think uh, it's also put forward that Charles Hackett was not necessarily the most popular guy in Muskegon, that this sort of helped to win back the community to his side. Where did this theory kind of um, come from then? I mean, did they have any kind of background for this? I mean, how did this theory get started? Because I've seen a lot of different theories about what happened to Confederate Treasury after the war and during the war. Um, a lot of them have it still buried in the South or even different places in the South. Having it come up north here is kind of unique, though, from what I've seen. So how did this theory tie in Michigan? So the connection that they kind of have is apparently there was a deathbed confession given by George Abbott uh, right before he died. I'm not exactly sure who he told, but I think it was kind of passed down through a few generations. But evidently he had said that there was a boxcar full of gold that was sunken in Lake Michigan, I think off the coast of uh, Frankfurt or at least kind of in that general area that contained this gold. And that was sort of how um, the theory got got started. So I guess let's go back to the beginning then. Uh, so we're at 1865 in April and Union forces are making their way south and they approach Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy. And at that time, Jefferson Davis decides to evacuate the city and evacuate the treasury, correct? Mm-hmm. So that we know is is true, right? There's documentation that he brought with him or at least told um, the treasurer to bring the treasury out of the city. Right, exactly. 
So uh, we have a few first-hand accounts of what actually happened to the Confederate Treasury as the Union Army was kind of closing in on Richmond. On April 2nd, uh, a gentleman named William H. Parker uh, was put in charge of uh, transporting the Confederate Treasury. Uh, he was in charge of it from April 2nd to about May 2nd, so for a month's time. And he traveled uh, from Richmond and then kind of made some stops along the way and ended in uh, Abbeville, South Carolina. Now, was it put on trains or were they on wagons at this point? I believe that they were traveling on rail for most of the time. But, uh, yeah, so one of the uh, spots in the first-hand account says, for example, I went to the depot at 6 o'clock and found the treasure packed in the cars. And so was Jefferson Davis on that same train then, or was he on a separate train or on a trail? So from his first-hand account, um, again, he says here the president's train was to proceed mine, which was expected to be last out of the city. So it appears that uh, Jefferson Davis and the treasurer were actually traveling on two separate trains at this point. They're going towards the same destination you said in, uh, or going towards, was it South Carolina? Mm-hmm, correct? That's right. The gold that was on the train then, do we know what happened with it or is it all locked up? So from what I understand, it was packed into different uh, boxes and containers, but was pretty well sealed. It was being guarded by a pretty substantial amount of uh, men, sentinels, you know, guards, mm-hmm. who were there to uh, protect it and make sure that no one got into it, basically. So okay. it was under a pretty heavy watch. So then once it reaches South Carolina, what happens then? Then it was transferred to Colonel Basil Duke. He only had control of the Treasury for about two days from May 2nd to May 4th. And then after uh, Basil Duke had it, it went Captain uh, Makaja H. Clark. And he was actually made the last acting treasurer of the Confederacy by Jefferson Davis himself. And this was in Washington, Georgia. Now, Clark kept pretty detailed records, right, because he eventually started dispersing a little bit of the treasury? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, all three of these gentlemen who were in charge did um, have instructions at different points to give away certain amounts, but uh, Clark in particular kept really good records of all of the money that he was giving out, the amount, who he was giving it to, where they were in many of the cases when he gave out the money. So it's pretty easy to kind of follow the disbursements and see where all this money went. So do we know how much originally left Richmond then, or approximately how much? Yes, so that first guy that was in charge of it, William H. Parker, uh, in his first-hand account he says, so far as I know, there was about half a million dollars in gold, silver, and bullion. So right off the bat, it's at most maybe a half a million dollars. Basil Duke, who takes control of it after him, says that he was told, and he did not do a count, but that it was between five and six hundred thousand dollars. And then the last acting treasurer, uh, Clark, uh, says, all the balance was turned into my hands, which amounted in gold and silver coin, gold and silver bullion, to $288,022.90. So that kind of makes sense based on different amounts that were given out along the way. So right off the bat, this kind of two million dollar sum of gold that was potentially there, Seems like it'd be a lot less, an eighth of that amount or so. Roughly. Right. So all three of these accounts, I mean, at most they they say it's five to six hundred thousand, and then as low as two hundred and eighty-eight. So yeah, not really getting very close to that two million dollar mark. And this is all from people who were directly connected with the treasury on the Confederate side. So and so the sources where you're quoting them, what what are the sources for this um, transport of gold? First of all. 
Well, I did find quite a few first-hand accounts from all three of these gentlemen. So these are them writing for different uh, historical papers and journals and books and things, uh, detailing their time in control of the Confederate Treasury. And has there been, um, I guess, questions that they might have been trying to cover anything up, or does it seem like there's pretty accurate sources? As far as I can tell, it seems like they're pretty well-respected. Most accounts that I've seen that when they're bringing up the Confederate Treasury, they point especially to uh, Makaja Clark, since he was kind of the last one in charge, and they uh, said that you know his is probably the, the best account, and so it seems like even on the Confederate side that they hold it up as being pretty accurate. Okay. We know that Jefferson Davis then left this train. He traveled with a, not a mule team, but a donkey team. Yeah, I guess you could call it like a wagon train. Uh, it was himself. Uh, he did meet up with his wife and their children, and then some kind of various... Other officers. Other, yeah, other officers and members of the Confederate Army. So it was kind of a small uh, party of people that they were traveling with. And so they started traveling southward down to Georgia, correct? Mm-hmm, yes. And so, do we know how many wagons they had with them? So in the first-hand account that was written by Benjamin Pritchard, who was a member of the 4th Michigan, you might remember his name from earlier in this story, apparently when Jefferson Davis and his party were captured... They had five wagons and three ambulances, which were, you know, as they sound, basically used to carry uh, people for medical purposes. Okay. And so they were being pulled by donkeys? Donkeys and uh, some horses as well. horses as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the theory states that there were 25 to 30 donkeys with them at the time, Mm -hmm. and that you would not necessarily need that many donkeys to pull the wagons that were, um, I guess, described by Pritchard. So in Pritchard's account, he says that they have five wagons, three ambulances, about 15 horses, and from 25 to 30 mules. So yeah, that part of the theory says that they had uh, too many animals for the amount of wagons uh, that they were pulling. And thus the wagons that weren't there were the ones full of the treasury. Yeah, exactly. So once they took the treasure, they kind of abandoned those uh, wagons. Do we know, though, that the treasury was with Davis? I mean... Did he have a lot of money on him, or what happened to, I guess, the train that had the treasury on it? That last acting treasurer, uh, Captain Clark, he separates from Jefferson Davis's party uh, and then uh, is traveling and giving gold to different people, but is not with Jefferson Davis. Uh, he does say that he gives some money to members of the party who are traveling with Jefferson Davis, but he even says explicitly that he did not give any gold to Jefferson Davis himself. So the gold that he gave to the members of a party who were traveling with Jefferson Davis were um, to Colonel uh, William Preston Johnston, who was uh, one of Jefferson Davis's uh, aide-de-camps, and also Colonel F.R. Lubbock, who was another aide-de-camp. He gave uh, both of those gentlemen uh, $1,500 in gold, and then he also gave some money to uh, J- Judge John Reagan, who he says already had about $2,000 of his own money, but then he gave Judge Reagan about 3500 more. So that was about the amount that we know for sure was traveling with Jefferson Davis was about $8,500 in gold. Okay, so not a substantial sum, but a decent amount of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, quite a, quite a large amount for you know, kind of a small group, but not anywhere close to two million, as we mentioned before. And so then when Davis was captured by the 4th Michigan, you said they did an inventory of it. How much gold did they find on the party then? Close to that amount? 
So in the 4th Michigan's inventory that was written by Colonel Pritchard, he really doesn't mention any amount of gold being captured. Uh, some of the other members of the 4th Michigan in their first-hand accounts do mention some gold, but again, it's a pretty small amount. They don't really say explicitly, but they do say that it was being carried uh, in the holsters of some of the Confederate officers, and obviously a pistol holster is not a very large container right. for carrying a lot of gold, so that kind of matches up with maybe the few thousand that the Confederate officers have. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Okay, now we talked about having all these animals there to pull these wagons. Um, from what you found, does that seem like uh, a proper number or does it seem like they have extra or they might have ditched some of these wagons that potentially had extra gold on them? Yeah, that's a good question. So from what I found, the uh, number of mules and horses actually is perfectly reasonable and makes a lot of sense. Uh, I found actually a book online that's all about the use of horses and mules in the Civil War and kind of the role that they played. And it says on the Union side that uh, initially wagons were pulled by four horses, but soon after the war began, a change was made to six mules per wagon. And uh, on the Confederate side, for instance, it says that, uh, speaking of a specific uh, infantry unit, the 3rd Louisiana, says each of their 14 wagons was pulled by four to six mules. So even on both sides, let's say there's uh, six mules to pull uh, one wagon. And then it's also mentioning the ambulances, which are a little bit different. Uh, smaller two-wheeled ambulances were pulled by one horse, whereas a four-wheeled ambulance might have been pulled by four horses. So if you were to take the five wagons that were reported to be captured, and they were each being pulled by six mules per wagon, that equals about 30 mules, which uh, is just about the exact number they said between 25 and 30 mules. So that adds up mm -hmm. uh, pretty reasonably. And if you were to take those three ambulances, and they were being pulled by the four horses, if they were the four-wheeled variety, then that would equal 12 horses, which leaves three extra horses. So let's say one for Jefferson Davis and maybe two of the other officers that were there. That would equal your 15 horses. So really the amount of mules and horses that were there is uh, pretty believable and pretty reasonable for the amount of wagons and ambulances that they had. Okay, so let's imagine though that they did have these extra mules there. Maybe they were using two mules instead to pull some of these wagons because they were lighter and that they had these extra wagons and they brushed them aside. Um, let's kind of continue the theory on then that some of this gold was hidden and it was covered up by Pritchard and others then of the 4th Michigan. Okay. So I guess going from there, they would have buried the gold hit yeah. it, and they would have left it out of the records that they had found this. Mm -hmm. And then the plan was to come back later, dig it up, and then bring it to wherever they chose to, or in this case, Michigan. Right, yeah, that's the theory. So then it kind of revolves around this, and you'd mentioned, was it Robert Minty? Mm -hmm. He was the, the commander of the 4th Michigan? Yes. Okay, so then Minty becomes involved because it's his unit, his regiment, mm -hmm. and how does he then get this gold out of the ground in Georgia and get it up to Michigan. What what method does he use? Well, one of the biggest problems right off the bat is that when Jefferson Davis is actually captured by the 4th Michigan, uh, Colonel Minty is not even with them at the time of the capture. 
in Benjamin Pritchard's first-hand account that he wrote to Edwin M. Stanton, who was the Secretary of War during that time, uh, the first line says, I have the honor to report that in obedience to orders received from Colonel R.H.G. Minty, Commander Division, that I left Macon, Georgia at 8 o'clock p.m. So right off the bat, Colonel Minty's not even with them. So it would have been pretty difficult for him to coordinate this entire plan uh, without even knowing that this gold had been captured. Could Pritchard have possibly taken the initiative then and then reported back to Minty about his plan? I suppose anything is possible. In my personal opinion, that seems sort of unlikely that you found this big stash of gold and then you want to share it with all of the people that you know. But, yeah, I guess anything's possible. So then, if Minty... I mean, this does happen, and Minty becomes aware of this gold. He's aware that it was buried by Pritchard and others. So then he kind of takes over, I guess, the dash of gold. Yeah. And so he ends up packing on a rail train, you had mentioned, and bringing it up north to Michigan. So what was his connection with the railroad? Because he worked for different railroads. Yeah, after so the uh, after the war, Robert Minty was involved in a number of railroads, but as far as I've been able to tell, none of the railroads that he worked for actually had any real connection to the area where the gold was uh, supposedly buried. And do we know what happened to Pritchard after the war? Uh, he did move to Allegan County, did open a national bank there, and he became uh, one of the uh, treasurers of the state of Michigan for a while. So would he have any, I guess, connection to the South then to be able to retrieve this gold? Because he was the one on site in charge. It seems like he'd be the one most likely to kind of be the leader of what happened to it then? Not that I'm personally aware of, and especially based on this theory, they really put Minty as the the point person who was really mm-hmm. in charge of coordinating this whole plan, and uh, kind of, they kind of paint Pritchard as more of a secondary character. So then we're kind of relying on Minty and him not being at the site, but still being in charge of this plan to bury the gold, and then retrieve it later. Right, exactly. So then somehow Minty manages to bury, or excuse me, uncover the gold in Georgia, load it on trains going northward Mm -hmm. to Michigan. He causes the diversion with uh, Anabasta train disaster. Ashtabula. Ashtabula train disaster. So that allows him nice free passage up here to Michigan. And then the gold is delivered to Charles Hackley's his business office? Do we know the bank right away? Yeah, so they think at first it was stored uh, in Charles Hackway's office, which was on Western Avenue, and then later on it was moved uh, to Muskegon National Bank. So then how does that, I guess, end up on a train car in Lake Michigan? Well, it's not something that I claim to fully understand, but based on what I've heard, uh, as this plot kind of went on, it appears that some of the parties involved uh, started sort of fighting about the gold, and um, that was why it was being moved to a different location. So it was moving from Muskegon up north, and then um, somehow it ended up on a ship, and during a storm to lighten the load of the ship, it was pushed off in one of these boxcars, where it has been ever since. Now, Abbott worked at Hackley's Bank, who was the brother-in-law to Robert Minty, Mm -hmm. and so that's how... The connection was made with Hackley. Do we know any thought on the theory why Hackley was brought into this? Well, obviously, when you think of Muskegon, or when most people think of Muskegon, especially uh, wealthy people, they think of Charles Hackley for this time period. So um, I can see the connection there that if you're trying to trace where a stash of gold might have gone, that looking to some of the wealthier people in town 
makes a lot of sense. But uh, unfortunately, this banking connection does not really appear to have a lot of uh, proof behind it. One of the biggest problems is that when the Muskegon National Bank actually opened in 1870, Charles Hackley might have been an investor, but doesn't appear to have been a position of power. He wasn't an officer, he wasn't a director, so he really wasn't involved in the bank in a big way until uh, much later. Uh, another problem is that George Abbott actually doesn't move to Muskegon and start working at the National Bank until 1882, so way after this gold was reportedly moved here. Uh, one of the other problems is that while Colonel Minty uh, was the brother-in-law of George Abbott, uh, they probably were not on very good terms, especially in the 1870s from there on, because uh, Colonel Minty was married to George Abbott's sister, but uh, while still married, he began an affair with one of the other Abbott sisters, had several uh, children with her, which of course resulted in uh, a pretty big falling out within that family. So it seems extremely unlikely that George Abbott would have had a very cozy relationship with Colonel Minty during that time period. Now, I saw that Minty did actually marry that second Abbott sister then, so mm -hmm. he would have been still involved in the family. Hard to say how the family relations would have played out in that situation, though, because that's obviously a very difficult family dynamic at that point in time. Right. Minty is still related to Abbott, but, yeah, on what terms? Hard to say. Yeah, I can't imagine that they were very good. So now the theory states that Hackley did, um, I guess, involved with this gold. He received part of it, and then he started feeling really guilty about it, and so he decided to then donate it to Muskegon by things like Hackley Park. Is there any validity behind that? Do we know why Charles Hackley decided to create Hackley Park? You know, we don't really have a whole lot of uh, super solid evidence why Charles Hackley decided to give these gifts, other than he just lived in Muskegon for a long time. It was the community where he had become a wealthy person, and I think he just felt kind of like it was his duty to uh, give back to people. And he kind of idolized Andrew Carnegie, right, a little bit, or he thought yeah, along exactly. the same lines mm -hmm. as Carnegie did. Mm -hmm. And there is a quote from Charles Hackley um, kind of speaking and saying that he believes that, um, for a large part, wealthy people like himself actually owe their wealth to the community because it's sort of through the labor of the people under them that they themselves become wealthy that it's sort of their duty to give back to people in some way. Now, would Charles Hackley have enough money based on just his business interests to be able to have all these donations like the park and the hospital and the library um, without this money from the gold? Yes, absolutely. So uh, there are still a lot of the Hackley financial records that are around. Many of them are kept uh, in the Michigan State University archives in Lansing. Uh, and there was a gentleman that wrote a book about Charles Hackley and all of his business affairs back in the late uh, 1980s. And we have that uh, book available to us. And just looking at some of the figures from uh, just one of Charles Hackley's lumber mills, and keep in mind he was often involved in at least two or sometimes three uh, firms kind of operating simultaneously, that if you were to even make uh, hypothetical calculations as to uh, what these firms could have made, it's a pretty astronomical amount of money. Millions of dollars, though. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So being able to have the money to give back to the city, that seems quite likely with just his business interest in lumbering. Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, if you were to take an article that we found from 1870 in the Muskegon News and Reporter, 
it says that $15 was the average price per thousand board feet on the east coast of Michigan. So we'll just use that $15 as kind of a hypothetical number for per thousand board feet. And then we are uh, to take the number of feet in lumber cut for Hackley and Gordon, again, just one of Charles Hackley's firms. So you take that $15, you subtract uh, $1.66 for that year's production cost. So what it costs to run the mill, pay the, the workers and all that. And where's that cost documented at? How do we know that's the... So that cost. comes from the Hackley and Hume papers. So this is um, so this is something that uh, Hackley or Hume recorded. This was their annual production cost mm -hmm. this year. Okay. Yep, absolutely. So if you were to take that number uh, and then multiply that by the number of board feet cut, that would equal about two hundred and ten thousand uh, dollars. Charles Hackley owned that uh, firm, kind of split right down the middle with James McGordon, his partner. So that would mean Charles Hackley's uh, proceeds from the year would be about $105,362, which today would be about $1.8 million. So pretty substantial fun, um, amount of money, and that's, like you said, from one of his mills. He owned several, though, right? Right, Different and just times. in one year. In one year. And obviously it was probably a little bit lower than this based on you know his own personal expenses and uh, other things like that, but just kind of goes to show that he was really not in any... Um, bad financial standing for quite a long time, based on not only Hackley, but all of the other millionaires in the lumbering industry in Muskegon. It was a pretty profitable business for a lot of people. Now, part of the theory um, says that Hackley Park, like you said, was this kind of uh, gift to the city out of guilt from Hackley, and part of that is included that they say the design of it ends up looking like a Confederate flag, kind of nodding back to this gold that Hackley had obtained illegally. So, is there any validity behind that, or is that just kind of a standard park design for the 1880s, 1890s? Yeah, so that is a pretty common park design for that time period. Uh, you'll look at uh, Bronson Park in Kalamazoo that has that same X shape. Uh, Centennial Park in Holland has that same park shape. And actually the design of Hackley Park was done by Olaf Benson, and he actually was a Civil War veteran on the Union side, so it seems a little bit unlikely to me that uh, a gentleman who kind of uh, fought for his country in the Civil War would be willing to build a monument to the Confederacy in this park's design. So yeah, pretty standard, not necessarily direct tie. That's kind of more of a it's really just a, co a, bit, a coincidence. Yeah. coincidence. Yeah, and especially to build this monument, so to speak, to the Confederacy in the design of the park, but then to put statues of all of these famous. Uh, Union generals and Abraham Lincoln seems a little bit counterintuitive if you're trying to uh, honor the Confederacy in some way. So anything else to add about the theory on Aaron? Well, yes. So there are a few other discrepancies. Uh, as I mentioned before, this whole theory is actually kind of based on a deathbed confession that George Abbott apparently gave uh, right before he died. But the biggest problem with that is that, by all accounts, George Abbott actually never had a deathbed confession. His obituary from 1921 says that he uh, basically fell over and died. Uh, it says, Miss Abbott was in another room when she heard her husband fall, death having occurred instantly. So, hard to give a deathbed confession if you're not in bed. Was he sick throughout that week, or is he more or less healthy at that time? Uh, it says here that he had been in fairly good health up to the time of his death, and maybe slightly ill, but no real sign of anything uh, very serious until he passed very suddenly. 
So then do we know what he ended up dying from? So his obituary says that it was uh, from heart failure. But as I mentioned before, it seems like it uh, happened pretty suddenly. So not necessarily a lot of warning signs of heart failure. It's not like some disease he's suffering through and then finally succumbs to. It's more of a kind of a quick heart attack that ends right there. Right. It even says here he was at the office yesterday afternoon visiting and joking with old friends. Uh, and then he passed a restless night. So it seemed like his illness came on pretty quickly and uh, his death happened, like it says, instantly. So, so it seems a little unlikely that he would have been able to give a deathbed confession. Uh, one of the other things that I found very interesting is that while Robert Minty, who was that leader of the 4th Michigan, he did have uh, a number of railroad companies that he worked for. It doesn't appear that any of them actually connected to where this gold was supposedly buried. So in 1869, he was the superintendent of the Grand River Valley Railroad, which was right here in Michigan. That next year, in 1870, he's still living in Jackson, Michigan, working for that same railroad company. In 1871... He's at the Louisville, New Albany, and Chicago Railroad in 1872. He's uh, still at that same railroad. In 1873, he moved to the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad, which I suppose is a little bit closer, although the name is a little bit misleading because this rail really only runs uh, from St. Louis, Missouri, to about Cincinnati, Ohio, so it's more uh, east and west. Still a long way from Georgia. Yeah, exactly. In 1874... He is working for the St. Louis and Southeastern Railroad at the Nashville office in 1875, still at that same uh, rail company. And in 1876, he is also still there. And the uh, St. Louis and Southeastern Railroad goes from St. Louis, Missouri to Nashville, Tennessee. So again, not a very big stretch to transport this gold. So he would have had to use other rail or some other method to get it to one of these tracks that he was then in charge of, or he would have had a little easier time, basically. Mm -hmm. But as I found, most of these tracks are actually running east and west, and not north and south, so I don't... Would have taken a lot of changing and jumping and transferring then, right? Sure, through companies that he wasn't really affiliated with. And actually, that Ashtabula train disaster, uh, that bridge that the train was on when it collapsed was owned by the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Railway, and I found no evidence of him ever working uh, for that company. So it would have been very hard to uh, stage this huge railroad disaster where uh, many people died. It was a pretty big deal at the time. So once again, another tie that seems very, very loose, if at all, there. Mm -hmm. Any other final thoughts on the theory? Well, it just seems to me like if Charles Hackley and uh, many other people here in Muskegon were involved in this plot, that we probably would have heard about it before now especially Thomas Hume. Uh, Thomas Hume was actually related to George Abbott by marriage, in a sense. Uh, one of George the, Abbott was the one who gave that deathbed confession. Right, exactly. Theory. Yep. So George Abbott had a daughter whose name was Anne, and she married one of Thomas Hume's sons, George Hume, in 1904. And from about 1872 to 1881, and even beyond 1881, Thomas Hume was Charles Hackley's bookkeeper for uh, many of his lumbering firms, but they're not really trying to bring Thomas Hume into this, which I find particularly interesting that Charles Hackley's bookkeeper wouldn't have had any idea about where all of his money was uh, coming and going from. It does seem a little, little odd, especially if you have large, large sums of money, which he's then giving back out to the city. That's got to come from somewhere. It can't just you know, appear in your account, right? Right, exactly. 
Well, all right, Aaron, I'd like to thank you very much for taking your time out and um, talk to us about this Confederate gold theory. As always, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to leave those on our um, podcast page, which is podomatic.com, and search for Muskegon History and Beyond with the Lakeshore Museum Center. Um, you can also leave us comments on Facebook as well with the link to the podcast episode. Aaron, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a great day, everyone. Bye. Bye.